I need to create a system to protect me from me. And then furthermore, it was like, how do you want to live? What do you want your life to be like? You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. You're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here with Rob Deerdick. How are you, man? Good, man. I love the flow of hot talk. You know, it almost sounds a little erotic. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. I feel like I got to get more bass in my voice, like really get into yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so and I always like to start, you know, I, I assume as a three-year-old, you didn't, you didn't think you'd be, you know, a business mogul and a pro skater and all these different things. Like you didn't come out of the womb ready to on a skateboard. So we'd love to hear where did it all start? Where are you from? Um, you know, look, I, I feel like I did almost come out of the womb to it, right? But, you know, I grew up and was born in Kettering, Ohio. Mother was a stay-at-home mom. Father was a suit salesman. Father was extraordinarily positive, deep optimist, like friendly with everyone. Mom, super religious and paranoid, right? So I ended up with this like great balance of like deep optimism along with a general sense of self-protection that I think kind of created the balance in me. I grew up creative, took a ton of art classes, discovered skateboarding, you know, was played a ton of sports and when I was young and then discovered skateboarding when I was 11 years old. And from literally the moment I, you know, got my first skateboard it was, I'm going to be a pro skateboarder, right? So, so where that's, who got, how that start? Like, how did you discover it? You know, my sister's boyfriend was had like he was the coolest person I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> he showed up with spiked hair, four bandanas around each arms, spiked belts across the chest and waist, and four bandanas on each leg. I'm like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. He was a skateboarder, and so I like wanted to be like him. So I actually bought my first skateboard from him, a fluorescent pink Bo Brown, and then I emulated him. I went to elementary school with four bandanas on each arm and spiked hair. And people were like, what's up with you? And I'm like, I'm a skater. I'm a punk rock skater, you know, and, and that sort of kind of set it off. But the thing that happened was, you know, I was so athletic and I got good, so good, so quick. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he was the leader of the street rats, right? He had his own crew and he wouldn't let me in the street rats because I was like her, his girlfriend's little brother. So I had to form my own crew, the wild grinders, you know, and there was a huge contest coming into town put on by one of the local skate shops and I didn't have any money. So I called the, the skate shop and asked if I got 10 people to enter, would I be able to go to the contest, right? And, you know, took that initiative and they were like, what? Okay, come down here. Sure. You know, and... and so I'm curious, they, just to pause there, where'd that come from? Like, was it just the confidence your parents built in you? Like, where did you, you know, you're 11, 12 years old. Look, I don't know. Right. Like you can't you, you know, especially as I have children, I watch them develop. Right. And and, yeah. and and I play deeply on sort of self-belief and and sort of critical thinking and how you evolve yourself, even at this very young age. But because when I look at it, I look at it as everything I tried at a very early age, I found success. Right. So whether that was Taekwondo or soccer, whatever it may be. So there was this beginning of this innate idea that like I could do anything. Right. And, and then my father was always so positive. Like anytime I'd ask him, like, can you fix this? Of course I can. I'm your dad. Right. So I I was layered into this in that early age. Now I I decided I'm going to take this shot and it worked. Yeah. Right. So again, it was a moment in time that could have gone either way. Right. It could have been where they were like, get out of here. Like, you don't. And and I could have tried it another time. And then I it could have deterred me from ever doing it again. Instead, it became a lifelong trait that I carry into my business today of going straight to the person that makes the deal on everything. Right. Like no matter what business I'm in. And and so it's this nature versus nurture where I got extraordinarily lucky to find that type of success. And, and then as the odds would have it, it was a, the person that owned the skate shop was a 19 year old serial entrepreneur. 
And so like, it was this first, I became his friend and then I became sponsored by the skate shop. So what happens? You make this random phone call. This leads you to becoming sponsored by the actual skate shop. Then you become mentored by a young serial entrepreneur at 11, 12 years old, right? That's this super outlier, unusual path to be presented with at such a young age that proved to be what shaped me and took me on these sort of two paths of being athlete, entertainer, and entrepreneur business person. You but know? you got that early positive reinforcement across everything you did, which is, Nate, that makes sense. Like you were, right. you said you were good at Taekwondo, you were good at this, you made that one phone call and took a you know chance and then it was, you were rewarded for it, which just incentivized you push to do all that, it sounds like your entire career. Right, right. And again, lucky. Boy, yeah, you got lucky at 11, 12 years old. You know what I mean? Like, and that you carried that momentum, like, and then used that relationship as a platform to begin to build your name in skateboarding and, and you know, eventually make your way to California at a very young age from them allowing you to work at the skate shop when you were 14 so you could buy, make enough money to go to California so you could be amongst the best to showcase your skills that you were developing in Ohio, basically out in the middle of nowhere, you know? Yeah. So tell me about, so what age, so I guess after the 12, you were 12 when you entered that tournament. Is that about right? Yeah. So 12 to when did you move to California? Or come well, I, I, I had initially like a couple of the guys that were from Dayton moved out to San Diego and started working for this company, GNS Skateboards. And that's who initially sponsored me, factory sponsored me at 14 years old. And so I worked to save enough money to go out and start visiting in San Diego. Okay. And then when those two guys that moved from Dayton out there to start that company moved back and started a new startup skateboard company with my serial entrepreneur mentor that I helped play a part in developing and naming at 15, right? So now I'm in my first experience of watching like this group of older mentors come together to form a company and then going through the process of creating the name and seeing the logos and watching it come alive, right? It was this extraordinarily thrilling experience. And so now this is who I turned pro for at 16 years old. And for them, they knew that like, hey, we need to get this young pro that's our star out to California. And so at the time, you know, I was making as a pro skateboarder in Ohio, you know, I was making anywhere from $60 a month to like 800. And one year I made $2 a month. I sold one board. So they guaranteed guaranteed me a thousand dollars a month if I would move to California and I felt like I hit the lottery it was like what I'm out of here right and you know you got to think I stopped going to high school after my junior year and went to Europe for the world championships and placed fourth and so now here I am 16 years old fresh off of like man this guy's like top in the world already we need to get him to California and I had already quit school and my parents gave me the okay and then I moved out to California when I was 17. Wow and what was the name of that company by the way that they started out of Ohio? That you helped. Alien Workshop. Alien oh, got Workshop. It. And the reason we call it Alien Workshop was Dayton, Ohio is where Hangar 18 is. Yep. And so we were all deep into alien conspiracies. And the whole idea is that they were re-engineering UFO technology and Hangar 18 and little alien workshops. That's what led to ultimately creating the concept, you know. I remember that brand. That's awesome. And so move out to California at 17. How was it landing in here? Like you obviously were taught, you know, doing well in your game. You were fourth in, you know, in Europe and everything. But how did it feel to land at 17 in California? Where did you have connections out here? Or were you? I did. I did. Right. So, you know, I'm all basically California was waiting for me. Right. Because it's like, man, this kid's like gnarly. This this kid from Ohio, that's like they formed this company out there and he's like this top pro. So I had been going out there every year since I was 14. So I had a ton of relationships. And, you know, unfortunately for my mom, she just hated it. She didn't want me to move. She wanted me to finish high school and then go to college and then move to California. California. And then, you know, a a fellow pro skateboarder friend of mine's sister and all her friends had a house and they had an extra room. So me and another friend moved out and moved in with her. And my mother was like, I told her like, Hey, we've got a really cheap place with these four girls. And her immediate response was like, Oh my God, you're going to get AIDS. (laughs) Right. And it's like, what? Like, that's how paranoid my mother was of just like what her 17 year old's life would be by moving in with four girls. But look, I got out here 
and flourished, right? And then what do you, what do you do when you're a young hot pro in the skateboarding game and now you're in Southern California? You get prospect by all the top companies, right? So we were a startup in Ohio. So now all the top companies are coming at me, making me offers, which essentially now gave me an opportunity to renegotiate with those guys. And I went from getting a thousand a month to 2,500 a month. And now I was rich. I would say you're balling. Yeah. Yeah, man, I was rich. And, you know, look, in that same time, you know, I'd watched all these guys build companies. And and so I had first thing I did when I when I moved out there was connect with a Southern California manufacturer and pitch them the idea of building a company of the skateboard trucks. And I said I would put together the entire team and concept and bring it to market. So in that first year, it was the very first time that by myself now I put together all of the parts as it was released. Related to both naming, designing, manufacturing, and team, and marketing, and everything all as one, and, and launched Orion Aluminum mm-hmm. in that first year that I got out there. Yeah, I remember that brand too. Awesome. And so, what? How did it progress from there? Give me the story. You're now. 18, you know, you know, look, now you're, you're, you know, you're suffering with learning about taxes and all <laughs> these other complexities. Like you're, you know, it's like, you know, I got hit with like, you know, $500 in ATM fees. Cause I got the cheapest account that charged me like $5 a transaction at my local 7-Eleven. I get $20 at a time, you know, yeah. you know, I got roped into buying a brand new Honda Civic when I went there just to look at it. It was, I had huge buyer's remorse. Like, Oh my God, I shouldn't be buying a brand new car. <laughs> just sort of this life and evolution while having a ton of fun. Right. And yeah. I think right in, right in that era was, you know, I had road for drawers clothing and drawers clothing was developing a footwear brand called DC shoes. Right. And so the entire concept was, Hey, all the skaters wear Nikes and everything when they're not skating and skate shoes are these big, puffy, clunky, really hard, very uncomfortable pieces of footwear. Like what if we make an athletic skate footwear brand? Right. And so they asked me if I would be the the first street signature pro and design a shoe. So it became my first opportunity to design a shoe, which was this extraordinarily thrilling thing, right? And in hindsight, it was also a beautiful look at what founder market fit looks like, right? When you have great operators in a pre-existing market and they they see an opportunity, then what white space looks like, they said, hey, this is what all the other footwear looks like if we make an athletic version, right? Like this beautiful thing. And then I designed the very first athletic skate footwear and launched DC and it exploded overnight. Right. Yeah. And and it was one of those things where, you know, when you look at all of the, those parts as it relates to what makes a startup successful or, or a venture successful, they had so many of them. Right. So many unfair advantages. And then they piled white space and great product design and unique value proposition in the market. That's why it exploded overnight. And now I went from making, you know, 50 you know, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year to now all of a sudden I'm making two hundred thousand a year, right? And now you are wow. Yeah. I'm really rich. I'm yeah. gonna buy myself an Audi. Right. Yeah. So it's like that was another huge, huge transition of development in that phase because it was like another thing again that I was a part of creating and yeah. being a part of it at the early stage and it works again. Yeah. Right. So now I'm just it's it's I'm being I was raised by entrepreneur wolves, right? And then everything that I would start would just work, right? Yeah. And and in hindsight, it was because I was had so much leverage inside a particular market. Yeah. But at the time, I just looked at I'm just an amazing business guy who knows well, you how also, to write deals together. You stuck with what you knew too, though, and that's the that's where I think a lot of people get go astray as they go into an industry that has nothing to do with their experience or what they know or what their access is. And you, everything you launched was very, very directly in what you knew and where you had access. And so, so then what happens next in the story? Yeah, I decided to launch a record label. There you go. Right, because of course, like now I got all this money and I'm the business guy. I start, I launch a retail store, a record label, all these things that, and now where am I at? I'm, yeah. I'm drifting in deep waters of industries I don't know anything about. Like I, you know, and and it was this 
brutal awakening and painful period where I was trying to do all of these companies because I wanted to get out of skateboarding and do something beyond skateboarding, right? Which I think a lot of, especially people that have great experience in a market tend to get jaded by it and don't see the opportunity and want to use the skills they developed in a, what seems to be an easier, better, greener pasture market to develop in, right? And And I spent a lot of years wasting a ton of that money trying all of these different ventures that, again, were not within sort of the wheelhouse and the expertise that I had, including letting my career begin to slip. Because now I'm, I'm skateboarding less and I'm, I'm doing more. I'm doing all this business and now that it's taking up all this time and energy and not working. And now it's like making my skateboarding suffer, yeah. which I hit a significant crossroads at 25 years old when DC said, hey, we think you're done. Right. Wow. And it's like, oh, my God. So now... They say, hey, we we think your best years are behind you. We're willing to give you one more contract, and then you should come here and be a shoe designer. Yeah. And, you know, he looked me, the, the Ken Block, the, the founder and CEO yeah. of DC at the time, looked me straight in the eye, and he said, wouldn't you be happy if you just had a, a condo and an Audi in the garage and that you had a job here designing shoes? And I just said, listen to me. Listen, no, I wouldn't. Listen to me. <laughs> In two years from now, I'm going to be a completely different human being. Mark my words, like, I'm not going to even say what I'm going to do. I'm just going to go and do it. And it was this remarkable turning point that that really sent my sort of personal growth trajectory and ultimately my continual evolution and growth trajectory on the upward from that point forward, you know. And, and so what was that? Was it just, I'm fully, like, I'm not going to get distracted. I'm going to fully commit. Like, what was yeah, that? Look, look, the first thing I did was find the great Dr. George Pratt in the Yellow Pages. He yeah. was a hypnotherapist that worked with different pro athletes. Mm-hmm. And he was out of Scripps, La Jolla, right? So I went down and did a session. He did all these tests on me. He's like, your subconscious doesn't believe you were meant to be successful. And so all he did was, all we did was hypnotherapy on my subconscious that at my subconscious level, I believed that I was meant to be successful and lights out. I never looked back, right? And as it relates to DC, I then rededicated, I got rid of everything that wasn't skateboarding focused, rededicated my entire, all my energy into skateboarding itself and then only business in skateboarding, primarily becoming a designer for them at the same time. But I ended up, you know, I went from you should retire to top 10 in the world. And then I started, I did a deal with them at that time of a Allow me to go through the same process as the designers, but if they pick my shoes, if sales picks my shoe, I get a royalty off of it. And they were like, sure. So they would do design briefs, right? And all the designers got to present. And I would go to these meetings, just the pro skateboarder, razzle dazzle. I would, I did these insane presentations and concepts around all my shoes. And at one point in DC, I had a third of the entire line and was getting paid a royalty on like 30 shoes. And when they eventually got acquired by Quicksilver, Quicksilver was like, why? are you paying this one pro skater like all this money off of all of these shoes? They're like, ah, he just made this deal with us that we just, we just figured it'd be a couple (laughs) shoes, but sales ended up picking all of his shoes. Right. So that was another major milestone of like, now you completely revamped your career and now you're making even more money because you have landed now in this, this sort of your relationship with the CEO, the skill set that you developed from a design standpoint and your ability to create creative deals where you saw an opportunity for scale, if you found success, but still made a plausible deal to get executed before yeah. that, right? And, and that was sort of the first time that happened. Did you still have Orion running? Was Orion Aluminum still a thing? Or? Yeah, so since it was fully, you know, operating, it was being done easily without me, right? Really, like, yeah. I, it wasn't like I had to run it. Since we had a manufacturer, and operator, distributor, at that point, I was just overseeing sort of marketing concepts without right. having to run it. So you kept that going. You And you started out really when you first got to California, you said, like a year yeah. in, right? Yeah. yeah, you kept that running. You built kind of that side business and then did the DC deal, which seems to be the most lucrative one at the time. And so when they sold, did that end your contract or did they keep it going? No, so so really when, when they sold, they gave me a, a big portion of the payout, which was super thoughtful, right? Because oh, of yeah. how instrumental I was. So again, another, in that year when they were acquired, I had my mega royalty checks, then my payout from the acquisition. 
now I'm really rich, right? <laughs> and so to me, like at that point, I'm like, man, I've peaked. Like, yeah. There's no way. I just got so lucky. Like there is no way I am ever going to make more money than this. So and how old were you at that point? I want to say I was probably 20, probably 28, 29, like, mm-hmm. like late, late, late twenties. But you got to see like at the end of that two year contract, I was like, I'm only going to sign a two year deal because I'm going to be so much bigger and better every two years, right? In the next two year deal, at the end of the next two year deal, you know, I was desperate because, you know, I had peaked on my potential as a pro skateboarder mm-hmm. and I was not that good. Right. And so now DC had become this elite professional team and we were putting together the DC video. So now the pressure was on for me to perform in this video against this team of elite pro vert skaters and street skaters. And I just didn't compare. So in order to compensate for my skill level, I came up with a concept of writing a skit that I'm going to get a security guard to come with me when I go street skate to deal with security guards, right? Uh, And that's what led to meeting, you know, just a straight, we called a local security agency in San Diego, California and said, hey, we're looking for like a really big, like intimidating, but lovable security guard. They're like, oh, we got the perfect guy for you. (laughs) And when me and Big Black met for the first time, we we met for the first time to shoot a portion of the D skit and man we were just we were just going like straight out the gate right it was like kindred spirits like straight away and then that dc video came out and that just blew up right it 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 made dc so big it blew up me and big black it was like we were this like crazy duo that like everyone was like oh this is amazing you know and it eventually led to jeff tremaine and Ruben Fleischer, well, actually Ruben Fleischer connecting with Jeff Tremaine to be like, you guys, you should do a show around these two, right? And that, at, even at the time, I was like, man, I don't have time to do some show. Like, I'm so busy doing all this footwear stuff now. Now I got all this money. Like, I want to build all this stuff, you know? Like, and so once we spoke with them, we just, and and we shot a couple, pi- not pilot, but just scenes, test scenes. Like, we decided, all right, let's go for it, you know? Yeah. And we took it into MTV. And when we pitched my sort of background and everything that I was doing and, and all of that stuff, and then I sort of led the pitch overall. And I brought in the song, People Let Me Tell You About My Best Friend, right? And I got the the name of the show was Best Friends, but they didn't like that, right? They decided they, they would buy the show, but they wanted it to be called Rob Deerdex Rules to Success. And, six, and rule number one is always surround yourself with great people. And Big Black was the first episode, right? And it's like, man, we just knew it was off. Right. Yeah. And we we're like, but whatever, if this is what it is. Right. Like, like in my mind, it's like I oversold myself in there. Right. Because now they're like, man, you created all this. This is like this is your world. Like, you know what I mean? Like and we ended up shooting the pilot and it, and it just did not work. And luckily, a guy named Shane Nickerson, who had been the story editor on the Nick and Jessica show, the newlywed show, came in and was cleaned it up. It was like, no, this show is about them. And he really shaped that pilot into to Rob and Big, which, you know, obviously this changed my life on on dramatic, dramatic trajectory into the mainstream, you know. But I had saw what had happened with Bam's product. Yeah, I had saw because of him being on Jackass and the amount of product that he was selling through retail of his boards and his footwear and all this stuff, even though like he wasn't even like a, a regular top skater, right? It just gave me pause before I launched the show. And and I went out and did a deal. I started another apparel company, founded it with a friend in Venice and eventually called Rogue Status that that Travis came Travis Barker came on and partnered with us. I renegotiated my royalties for my signature boards. I took half my salary for double the royalty. So I went from $2 royalty to a $5 royalty and then to appease Quicksilver in the acquisition, I said, "Hey, look, I will stop since I'm not getting to design any more shoes, I want now a 10% royalty and I want to pick these three. It was like the three best sellers. I want my version of these. And they were like, great. You know what I mean? Like, great. So I was able to renegotiate all of my royalty deals, including just anticipating that, yeah. man, if this thing works, like it does with BAM, like that's where I'm going to make the money. And, you know, it came out and blew up overnight, right? And then literally all of my signature product blew up 
right yeah. with it. It works dead, dead on cue. Now, again, we're talking lucky here. You know what I'm saying? Lucky, You're working but I will really say, hard, like, the foresight to do in position. Yeah. But, man the magic happens, right? Like yeah. you're, you're creative enough. You see where the, 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 the actual science of the opportunity is, yeah. but then boy, you go and get lucky too. You know? Well, and it's the level of optimism. You thought you, you, a lot of people think like, yeah, it might not work. So we'll see. You thought, well, no, but what if it does? And you went and acted on the hypothetical of like, if this goes big, what do I need to do to make sure that I'm super prepared for that? And I think that's definitely the lesson there is like, what, you know, let's be optimists. Like what, what, what happens if everything goes amazingly, which it did, what should yeah. I do to prepare for that? And you did, and it yeah. ended up being exponentially more successful for you, regardless of the show being successful because you set all this up. So that's awesome. And I've heard that story third party before, but it's cool to hear it about you actually went in and did that. Cause I've heard part of your brilliance was I'm going to have this platform. How do I leverage that beyond that? How do I take a reality show and not just make money being on a reality show, but like prepare ahead of time. Yeah. And look, I took it to the complete next level with Fantasy Factory, right? Because with Fantasy Factory, I now, like, I understood that I owned a media platform. Mm -hmm. So when I renegotiate, when I negotiated to do my own show, I only would do the deal if they gave me my integration rights to the media. And yep. so they were like, they, they just wanted me to do another show because once Robin Big ended, they just wanted me to do another show. And I had actually at the time, you know, I read an article with Vinny DeBona about America's Funniest Home Videos, global syndication business. And I'm like, I'm going to make the cool version of that. And they, I pitched that to them and they bought that at the same time. But they wanted me to do a reality show and they had offered me 35000 an episode to do Ridiculousness, but offered me 125000 an episode to do Fantasy Factory. And I didn't like the idea of doing another reality show because I didn't want it to be compared to Robin Big. Mm -hmm. And like, I hated like filming in my house and it's so hard to shoot reality where the reason I I love the idea of ridiculousness and wrote the concept so I could shoot it on a studio, right? You know, just decided they wanted to do both of them, but rather than go through the pain of doing both at the same time, I went the Fantasy Factory route. And again, only would do it if they gave me the integration rights. And so then I built the show around integration. So it's just a giant warehouse that is my office. That's the fantasy factory and all of my people around me that that manage my businesses. And then I use it as a platform to integrate all of my products, all of yeah. my partnerships. And then I went and sold deals to Chevy and Microsoft and Carl's Jr. and all of these different brands to create concepts and write them into my own show. And then I got all of the money from it, right? And it right. drove them crazy, right? Drove them crazy. Because they're like, how did this even happen? How is this guy doing a deal with Chevy, like, and we're not even getting an ad buy here, right? Like, but that was, again, it was really the, the, the person that really killed that once and for all in the reality TV game was Bethany Frankel and what had kind of happened to Skinny Girl. That was like the first time that a brand was sort of built where it was like enough's enough. But yep. since I wasn't just a reality show, but my business, what the show was about my businesses, it was organically integrated and they couldn't like do anything about the deal after it was signed. But now after her deal kind of broke it all and then there's just literally nobody gives up any rights of their media yeah. on, on at any level anywhere at this point right so yeah. but to me again I, I had the foresight saw it again saw what happened there what's the one area that i'm missing okay no like actually owning the media is what i'm missing and and just you know despite getting on top of getting paid all of that money on top of driving this massive royalty and now having all of this product selling and selling by the boatloads then i'm doing all these big corporate integration deals and, you know, in that time, I launched Street League. I wrote and produced the first skateboarding feature film and financed it and launched that through the platform. Like I was just using it to launch concept after concept, business after business, and really using the platform to begin to sort of transfer to more of a business entrepreneur brand, if you will. You know? Yeah. And what, what ended up being like the biggest success out of that in terms of what you launched through the Fantasy Factory and through that show? Like, obviously, your endorsements were great, but where did you plan? Look, you know, when you step back and look at it all, none of the actual businesses ever worked, right? And therein lied this incredibly difficult truth. 
right? Because now I'm this so-called serial entrepreneur that has this platform and multi Because keep in mind, I went on and started shooting ridiculousness. I had Wild Grinders, cartoon and toy on Nickelodeon. Mm -hmm. I had multiple brands like Ivy Eyewear, like all of my suits. I was like just doing thing after thing, like launch the league, all of these things, like all the room. My movie didn't make any money. My league was break even, although it was like had the huge potential. Wild Grinders, my cartoon, I never, despite having a deal with Mattel and, and Nickelodeon, I never made any money. I was faced at the end of that of, you know, what type of business person are you? How come you don't have a million things that are working? And, and it was, it was through it was a culmination of events that led to an investment group looking at my entire business to do a 360 deal with me and really seeing that like, man, this is just basically, you know, a guy, really smart guy that built a television show and that has all these endorsement and partnerships through it, but there's not a lot of created value in there outside of him. Right. And that's what really, it was this horrifically eye opening experience that made me realize that like, you need to take the time and you have to learn money. You have to learn business and how creating a great business actually works. And I went on this huge journey of hiring multiple consultants in different groups to basically teach me how to look at a business holistically and every single moving part. And then I eventually went to learn how to design a business completely and be able to understand it completely where before I only knew it through the lens of product and marketing marketing. Yeah, no, makes sense. And so give me the progression from there. You you have all these shows going, etc. What happened next? What, what was next for you? As I, you know, was getting older at that point too, right? You're, you're kind of faced with this like idea of like, you've been working so hard. You have this insane work ethic and will, and you keep expecting one of these things that you're doing to be the thing that changes your life. Yeah. Right. And I think in that period, I, I was looking for a consultant and I found a book called Start at the End. And it was a business book that basically said, hey, it doesn't matter what business you're trying to start. Like you need to have an understanding of why you're starting it and what does the end outcome look like? And for if that's for, hey, I want to build this company for five years and sell it. OK, figure out how much you want to sell it for and build a plan backwards of how you get there. Okay. I just want to, you know, do this business and it's my, my way of living. And I want to just have the profit at the end of every year, right? Like you have to design it. But what really hit me was like, no, you have to design your life, you yeah. know? But when I applied the idea to start at the end to my life, what type of life do you want? Right. It became this extraordinarily eye-opening experience, right? Where I started to begin to look at my entire life as these sort of interconnected parts that I needed to put a plan to each of them and no longer looking at like business and life separately, but looking at them holistically. What do you actually love to do? What do you yeah. enjoy doing the most? What are you best at? What do you need to learn? And then what do you actually how do you actually want to live? I realized money for me was actually lifestyle, right? And that a lot of times I would create things that became burdens and, and work for me of things I didn't even like to do. Yeah. And that was basically the genesis for creating the Deer Deck Machine because I realized like, you know, I'm not, an, I love to co-found businesses and create them, mm -hmm. but I don't like to operate them. Mm -hmm. Right? Like I love being in the creative side and businesses are only fun when they work. Yeah. Right. So it's yeah. like, I need to create a system to protect me from me. And then furthermore, it was like, how do you want to live? What do you want your life to be like? You know, like, are you the person that will attract, you want to get married and have kids, but are you even living the way or the person that would attract the person you want to spend your life with? Mm -hmm. And that's really how I truly changed who I was and designed who I wanted to become. And then the magic started to happen, right? So now you, you know, you meet your wife, you know, six months after that, like now you're, you're gaining all this clarity and, and all these people are coming into your life that are, are amplifying this sort of mission that you have to create this whole 
whole life, you're, you've now directed your entrepreneurial passion towards venture creation, where you get to, to live in the way that you love to do it the most, but you do it with partners that you can vet that they can go and operate it and you help create it and vise all of it. and was really coming together as it relates to my time and energy and balance. And then a portion of that was, you know, I transitioned from fantasy factory to doing ridiculousness only, but I still wanted to transition out of television. You know, at 39 years old, I was like, man, I can't be on MTV at 40. <laughs> this is crazy. Right. And, you know, it was like, you know, I'm Kurt Loader out here. Right. But as I developed my system of how to create and build sell businesses, I saw that my actual real opportunity and quickest path to do this, right? Because I set a goal for myself. I want to create a billion dollars in liquidity by building 30 to 50 companies and through concept to acquisition and making 15 to 30 mil off of each, right? That's how I would get to a billion dollars in liquidity. And okay, I've never sold, built and sold a company by myself up to that point. Right. I had been through the DC transaction, but at the end of the day, I was like, you know, more product marketing and, and skateboarder for it as opposed to understanding the, the process for how that occurred. Yeah. And so now I've taught myself all aspects of, of what it means to, to create a value, asset of value and, and how you identify who potentially could buy it and all, all these sort of things that, that relates to building a business to be acquired. Where's my opportunity? Television. Right. So the first thing that I did was build a production company through the system. And the most, you know, I went to the bankers. I had actually met with a guy who sold this company for 150 million. Said, How did you do it? He's like, I wish I would have talked to these bankers and they would have helped me. I would have got so much more out of it if I'd understand how to structure it properly. Went to these bankers, said, Hey, this is what I want to do. I want to build this thing and sell it for three years. They're like, Whoa, I mean, we are not, we're, we can manage the transaction, but we can't like, we can't run it for you. So then I went out and, and one of the guys that worked for me is like, Hey, I got a friend that was the operator of a production company that just got built and sold. You should talk to him, brought him in. So now we had a guy that just went through it who could operate the business. Yep. And then now it was on me to go out and get the revenue. And then I just went out, sold show after show, did a deal with MTV to extend ridiculousness and be able to own our production and yep. then built the company and sold the company in three years. Right. So it, nice. it, it changed the lens from like what the purpose of TV came for me, right? It was yeah. like, man, like TV actually becomes this extraordinary means to an end of, and your first opportunity to use your system and principles to build and sell a company. Now, what happened along the way is the show had this mega resurgence. And since I owned and controlled the entire business, I negotiated the unit economics of the actual show with the head of the network to negotiate a deal to go from getting 30 episodes ordered at a time to 186 and then took that to market like, hey, not only do we have this massive revenue and profits, but then we have these big orders and sold the company. And then when those big orders came out, right, and we're in the, in the middle of the earnout, they started airing it way more. And by them airing it way more, it like exploded. Right. Yep. And now it had this second crazy resurgence. Then the pandemic hit. Then it had this like psycho resurgence, which now I just signed a deal, even though I'm at 46 right now. And I said, yep. I said, bro, I got to go. He's like, he's like, let's I'll do as many as you want. And I'm like, dude, I got to I got to get off this now. I got to be off by 50. <laughs> so our last deal was to shoot 500 episodes, 250 over this year and the next year so that I can. And that's my like, hey, my thousand episodes of ridiculousness, 30 seasons, like I'm out. Right. Which all of that, that scale, that incredible luck, that magic of life. Wow. Only was possible because I I now controlled and understood the business and the value that the actual show created for the network and negotiated on the unit economics with the network, then reduced our budget in order to deliver. They made a bigger order, then got lucky and it took this other pop, which again created, you know, makes my earnout psychotic. Then I get all the talent money with it. And that one single first deal in my system essentially funds my entire vision for the machine into the complete future. And in that first year I launched it, 
you know, I built 12 companies, right? And I used all outsourced resources and, and co great co-founders and learned so much, right? Like, and most of the pain of what I consider my 2016, 17 year vintage of companies was founder market fit almost exclusively, right? It was undercapitalized founder, poor founder market fit was almost like identical all the way because I was still blind in that aspect, right? I was still looking at business in a brand and business, right? You're creative and marketing and all this and then your operations and finance, but and really it's how they all integrate and it's, it's brand and product and owned media, marketing, sales, operation, finance, and then the knowledge, the management team that has knowledge in all seven of these core capabilities to actually operate a business because if you're missing one, you're in trouble right and yep. it, it was one of the bigger breakthroughs despite having you know an extraordinary amount of success in in that sort of zone where you know made by science was a green algae encapsulation that these kids uh, had created they wanted to make chewable alcohol but they made uh, chemistry holdings for regular pharmaceutical and vitamins and stuff like that and then made by science for cannabis application sold never made a product sold that for 160 million merged with cure pharmaceuticals with chemistry little over $300 million market cap at that time, like, you know, built and sold the production company, part of the production company deal. They acquired my league at the same time. Yep. And then I had built a, a travel website called Where To, that same sort of vintage air that got acquired last year, right? And then right. our heroes in that are Outstanding Foods and Pig Out, our Pigless Pork Run and Pigless Bacon yep. Chip. You know, when when I met Bill Glazer, who's my do or die archetype, like the ultimate co-founder, you know, they had this incredible innovative vegan bacon chip. The name of the company was Fresh Soul, you know, and I'm like, bro, I want to do this with you, but let's make, let's be aggressive. Like yeah. this entire space is so, so vanilla. It's like Hampton yeah. Creek and like better yeah. for, you know, it's all this stuff. And he came at me one day with like, what do you think about pig out? And it was like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know. That's aggressive. And it's like, man, and then we could do it. The tip of the spears is taste. So it, the parent company could be outstanding and pig out for no pig. Then we can go to chicken out and steak out and all these different things. You know, we just closed the $10 million growth round at a hundred million valuation last week, right? Like nice. uh, the exponential growth of sort of that business, right? In, in that short amount of time. And then began to apply this new system where I created what I call the machine method, which is now this much more sophisticated way of bringing products to market. And then we built Luso Cloud that we just launched, which is our footwear, our comfort footwear brand. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Brian's posting about it. Yeah. And, and the, here's the, the depth though. We, we really looked at, we connected with John Buscemi as a legendary footwear designer. We, we launched into so, the marketing for Buscemi for like three years. Right. So, so he was leaving Buscemi and then we're, we're like, Hey, let's build a slide company. Right. And then like, when we did all the research in our system, it was like, man, like slides are blown out, but there's this sweet spot for like a hybrid slipper between a Gucci slipper and a slide for like 150 bucks. I'm like, it's this dead zone. So then we set out on like, let's make the most comfortable slide of all time. Right. But as we were developing the brand, and of course, who do we got? We got a legendary footwear designer and John Buscemi who put the whole team together. But as we were developing the business, I, I saw a stat that showed Crocs at $1 billion, Uggs at $1.6 billion and Birkenstocks at 800 million. And I'm like, okay, the actual opportunity here is to, to create a comfort brand that sits right next to those, but it's like the cute, ugly chick. If yeah. all of those are like just these ugly footwear, how do you make it still with that design language, but make it the cute and let's make a comfort brand. Let's, let's be the Apple to the Dell of the comfort space. Yeah. And it's really, again, founder market fit, like the right white space and then the right product and the, with the right opportunity and why, you know, we just launched it and, and into great success straight away, right? Yeah. But that is the first time through our machine method system and our seven core capabilities and how we actually build businesses in this much more sophisticated way, our first one that came from that, right? And then yeah. the second one is our good mood superfood, mind right, our brain food that we created, which essentially was 
was, you know, found a great founder and CEO and looked at the market, right? He was a CEO of another consumer goods, consumer packaged goods company. And he presented us with like, look, here is the path. It's been better for you. It went to better for you to functional. And now then to like, you know, collagen and probiotics and all this stuff. And look at this emerging brain health of nootropics and adaptogens. It is not landed on a food platform, right? So it, it became this incredibly beautiful opportunity. And then when we went to develop that brand, we did it through our system in a much more sophisticated way, which led, you know, because I thought nootropic superfood was the sickest thing I'd ever heard. But we went and tested it and everybody hated nootropics. It, it was originally, you know, we love the name MindRight, right? When we built the agency with an agency, they, they came, what do you think about MindRight? And they sh- we shaped it in because we were like, damn, that's perfect. It's like, that's cultural. Get your mind right is like a thing. Like now this product's like a verb. We made it funny. Like before you break up with your chick, get mind right. Before, you know, we, we could do all this stuff. But, and it was mind right, nootropic superfood with the unstoppable blend, right? We are like, this is going to be for people that, that are entrepreneurs. Well, when we tested it, it was actually over indexed with a female audience. And they really loved the idea of happy brain and thought the greatest benefit was good mood. And they, and they loved superfood and they hated the word nootropic, almost yeah. everybody through every demo. And we shifted it to this beautiful, like neon packaging and then switched it from nootropic superfood to good mood superfood. And now it's all of our marketing material, everything that we're building, it's like, it, it must make you happy. Every every little ad we make, every Instagram, yeah. it's like the value prop of what it means to be mind right is in the way that the product looks, the way that our social looks, the way that our ads should look, everything should just put you in a good mood, right? Is That's what again, the core of like how you get better and better over time as you have turned your personal mastery to curating ideas and individuals and shaping them into successful, sustainable, acquirable businesses. And so when are you coming out with the book, The Machine Method? Well, I'll tell you what, like, is the first book that I'm coming out with. Plus you are working on it. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah, but the book I'm coming out with first is The Machine Mindset. Right. Where I want to show I'm going to show the system that I created to ultimately create this extraordinarily happy, balanced, fulfilling life that is and how I did it. Right. Like that whole idea of start at the end and then discovering that that life is your life is essentially all of these interconnected systems and that you actually can design each of them to work succinctly for you to expand towards your ideal life, right? And and really, I think that is something that can impact people pretty significantly. And and it's it's a new way of thinking as it relates to personal development in a more sort of organized and theory, right? Applicable theory. So that's going to be the first first place I put the book. Then I'll do the business book behind it, you know? I like it. So two last questions for you, man. First off, what's next? Where are you taking this? It sounds like you have the path laid out. We'd love to hear it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, so so what we're launching in three weeks is our fully integrated multi-platform universe of brands, media, community, and philanthropy, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm building a digital series and podcast called Build with Rob, right? And I basically am going to gamify and, and edutainment my way into our entire process. I want to make heroes of all the founders and, and the way that we create and integrate them into sort of content in a fun comedic way to see what it's like to actually create and build with myself and the Deer Deck Machine, right? And then we're launching our community we call Machinists. We want to develop our entire platform of community collaborators, right? We want to now bring in our own group that like every time we have a new idea, we send it to them first to look at the whole process. They're sort of our feedback loop and ultimately our first customers for everything that we create. And then I just committed a million dollars to the Do or Die or Entrepreneur Foundation, where I'm essentially going to be giving grants to first-time entrepreneurs from underprivileged communities, right? Because, you know, for us, 
we only want to build with really experienced entrepreneurs because it's the it's the quickest path for us. And we know actually getting capital from someone to believe in you when you've never done anything is literally virtually impossible, yep. especially if you come from a place that has no access and understanding whatsoever. So that's sort of the first side of what we're doing from our philanthropy side of what the machine will do, right? And then all of our big exits over the last few years make up a portion portion of that million dollars that we donated into it. And then we will continue to do that throughout the cycle of every single one of our businesses, whether it's one of our dividend businesses that's profitable or, or one of our exits, right? Because we think it's essentially, we can see the person that's going to come to us in five years. And then we build that big brand with once they've, they've gone through the cycle of fully understanding and learning it and ask them to present their idea through our core capabilities in our system so that they're also learning, hey, this is how we look at things. You should look at it the same way. But we're, that's our big launch for this year. That that starts like a whole new website, brand, everything to go along with a handful of our new ventures that, that are happening this year as well. Love that. We just launched our education program. We teach inner city kids digital marketing on the weekend. So our team, our more senior level team, just does online courses, sits on Zoom and talks through how do you do Facebook ads? How do you launch a website? How do you build a Shopify site? So totally great. Hey, 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 we got to collaborate. We do. When we give it to someone, then you could yeah. be, you guys could meet. That'd be great. That'd be Yeah, we'd love to. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah, I'll hit up Brian about it. And so last question, and you've given a lot of advice. And you know, again, this is where both our passion seems to lie. But what would be your advice for that, you know, upper incomer, that person that has dreams, they could be, you know, whatever age it is, but they want to achieve their dreams. What would be that one thing that you think really can help them get there? I think you have to create a clear goal and general milestones to get there and then know exactly how you're going to get to the first milestone and then just learn and learn and adjust and adjust and learn and learn until you get to that first milestone because the moment you get there you'll have clarity on the second one and i just think more often than not people don't take advantage of how much information there is to learn about what they actually want to achieve and then underestimate how important creating milestones towards a goal is <laughs> because you also want a clear indication if you you just can't do it you know what i mean if my goal was to build and sell to master the curation of individuals and ideas and shape them into sustainable profit acquirable businesses, my first milestone is I got to sell one. Yeah. If I went 10 years and never sold one, never one made profitable sustainable, like I'm in the wrong business, right? Like that sort of thing. If you want to be a professional basketball player, uh, your first milestone is, you know, let's just say you didn't even play in college is getting into like a D league. Yep. You know what I mean? And if you can't work your way there, you're never going to go to play for the G league and then ultimately get a chance on a practice squad. You're just never going to get there. Those milestones are so important. And the first one, you should have clarity that you can see perfectly because progression towards a clear outcome drives self-belief, drives the energy and momentum and motivation that it takes to get there. It's when you, are not sure where you're headed and not sure how if you're making progress or not is when you start to lose belief and feel desperate and feel unmotivated. Yeah. And, and I think people underestimate putting a flag in a clear first step and how important it is to get energy by progressing towards it, no matter how slow it is. Yeah, 100% agree. And continuing to create that short-term goal. So once you reach that, what's the next short-term goal along the way? It's yeah, critical. So that's awesome, Rob. This has been an amazing interview. And thank you so much for being on Hawk Talk. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Till we meet again. Amen. Thanks, buddy. All right. Talk to you soon. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. 
Until next time.